published a kind of a sad story on Tuesday about a lack of funding for Say Yes to Education. At the very moment, our Cleveland's Premise series is showing how valuable it is. You ought to read it on cleveland.com. It's a story we'll talk about when the Layla's back. We have a bunch of other things to talk about on this episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and because it's Wednesday, our City Hall reporter, Courtney Astolfi. We've got stories to chat about. Let's get going. Laura, is the inexplicable move by Cuyahoga County Council to buy a toxic site for the new jail suddenly dead after all these months of going forward? Well, Definitely put on ice because the county council decided that they are going to postpone all decisions on jail-related legislation until the next executive takes office, which is what the executive candidates have been asking for for weeks. They previously tabled this at a committee of the whole meeting that Caitlin Durbin attended, and the county council president, Purnell Jones, said he believes that the further delay is a mistake. He talked about the years that they've been putting into this, the millions of dollars in research, but they are backing down. And he says council will be ready to work in good faith to consider the proposal next. I, I, I'm i surprised by this only because d- despite the mounting number of reasons they should do this, they hadn't done it, that they mm-hmm. continued to press forward. I mean, th- this this made sense to go and spend money on a site when two candidates said, I'm not building there. I'll sell it even if it costs us money. Right. Pretty much should have stopped it. And then you separately had the prosecutor's office saying, I'm going to sue you to stop this because I'm going to gum up the works until the new executive comes in. This is a bad idea. But despite all that, they kept pressing forward. And I, I we talked about it repeatedly. What are they thinking I don't know what changed their minds, but I think history will look favorably on the decision if they quickly get in action once the new executive comes in, pick the right site for it, get moving on this. This could this will be a good day for the residents of Cuyahoga County. Right. But the way that council it sounds like is that there are a lot of angry members of council that they feel pushed into this position because they've been talking about this for so long. And they were saying, you know, we talked last week about the steering committee members who voted against this and said, we don't want the jail on this site. And he's saying they're acting, or Purnell Jones, I believe, is saying that they're acting out of self-interest, you know, that the prosecutor's office and the, the judges don't want this jail away from their courthouse, which, I mean, they're just pointing fingers, I guess, Michael Gallagher, a council person, um, talked for about a half hour. Caitlin called his rhetoric incendiary. And so they're not saying, okay, we agree this is the right decision. Obviously, they feel cornered because of the everything that's happened. And they're saying, fine, we'll wait. But we think it's the wrong decision. To, to say it's self-interest is a little bit unfair. I, these they, they, they do want the people that are fighting this do want money in the budget to build a new justice center Mm -hmm. because they think the residents of Cuyahoga County should have a functioning justice center to, to say it's their self-interest. I mean, they don't profit by it. It's just the office where they work. I'm not sure it's as much keeping the jail and the, and the courthouse together as it is making sure one, making sure you don't put it on a toxic site. Look, they kept saying we can remediate this. But the question is, why? Why why even go to a site that you have to remediate when there are options for sites you don't? Mike O'Malley is looking at the lawsuits coming from Camp Lejeune, and he's looking across the country at other kinds of lawsuits like this saying, 
the person that succeeds me 10 and 15 and 20 years from now, if we build it here, we'll be spending a lot of time and taxpayer money defending lawsuits by people that say, this is on a toxic site. That's why I got sick. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not true, the lawsuits will be filed. So don't do it. You know, go get a site that's not like this. We never really understood why they were pushing so hard. They kept saying, we're told we can remediate it. Who cares? Don't do it. Go someplace you don't have to remediate, and then you avoid. But how many places are there? Looking to Franklin County, which went. There are though. They have a. There there was a site that came up in Garfield Heights that was right next to the interstate that they really didn't explore. That's not toxic at all. You know, they 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 really didn't. There has to be something better. Right. And well, and I don't, the word is that they really didn't go deep with the land bank to say, are, are there ways to assemble some parcels? Is there someplace, you know, so look, they're going to have to move quickly. The building is bad. Although we have talked about is, is it the building that's causing the problems or is it the mismanagement? The building didn't kill people for most of the time it was there. It's in bad shape. There's no doubt about it, but how, how much of a rush do you need? If you manage that place better, would you have good quality care we have a story coming this weekend that's going to get into some of those mismanagement issues and they sound pretty atrocious they do but i don't think that anyone is arguing that the jail is really set up to be uh, a good place for people to live to spend months of their life and and the reason they need so many people working on it is the way that it's set up i mean we've gone over and over on this before but I mean, just to under to underscore, we're talking about a toxic site with benzene where the remediation, we don't even know how many millions of dollars it would cost. And what if something breaks? I mean, I just think about that. You know, everything always breaks. And if you've got these very complicated technologies that, you know, diminish the gas from underground and put it up in the air and something's going to go wrong at some point. Like, we know this. Things break down. I just don't understand the rush and the risk. Yeah, and I the, the other thing that's really come to roost is they built the second of the two jail buildings in 1990s, and by then, jail philosophy had changed. That building was obsolete for, for modern jail practices before it was built, and you got to wonder, what were people thinking back then? Because elsewhere in the country, they were having conferences about the better way of doing this. It's more humane, it's safer, it's less expensive, and yet they built the, the, the obsolete building in, in terms Maybe of they thought, providing... we got to get it done. The, the, the costs are just going to keep going up, which is the same rhetoric we're hearing now. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. Maybe there wasn't a podcast back then saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? There was not it's a the, podcast oh, no. back in 1996. Twice failed candidate for U.S. Senate, or is it thrice failed? Josh Mandel went to a distant county, Ashland, to file his divorce papers a few years back to keep them from prying eyes, and a judge sealed them from public view. Why was that not okay, Courtney? Yeah, it's it's the Ohio Supreme Court saying this move was not okay by the Ashland County. Come and please, Judge Ronald Forstoffel. Apologies if I butchered that. You know, he he sealed. These, these records from Josh Mandel and his ex-wife, Alana, I think 21 different documents or pages back in 2020, the Mandels had filed a motion to seal up all their divorce paperwork. They didn't cite any legal authority why that was a legally sound move. And, and the judge back then didn't explain any legal reasoning as to why that was 
okay to do that. And and so enter the Cincinnati Inquirer. They came in and, and they sued to to force a vacation of the judge's order that sealed those records up and and basically let the public get a hold of them and, and check them out. You know, first off, he, he argued the Cincinnati Inquirer was was moot because Mandel later released redacted copies of these records to the press. But but the Ohio Supreme Court called nonsense. They they pointed out the Inquirer wasn't necessarily seeking to get their hands on the documents themselves. They were seeking a vacation of the judge's order, sealing them up. And and the Ohio Supreme Court also kind of called shenanigans. The Inquirer's case it, it was about the documents as a whole, not whatever Josh Mandel selectively selectively redacted and, and chose to release to the public. Yeah, a big tip of the hat to Beryl Love and the team at the Cincinnati Inquirer for pursuing this. It's not cheap to pursue these cases, and this was a good one to set on principle. This thing stunk from, to the high heavens. I mean, Josh Mandel had always run as the family man, you know, the guy devoted to his family. And then he dropped out of a Senate race, surprising everybody. You know, the Republican Party had put a lot of stock in him running against Sherrod Brown. He dropped out with, summarily overnight. And then very quickly thereafter, scurries off to a distant county to file divorce papers, not not doing it locally where people would have noticed. And then I'd never understood how a judge could seal them. It's almost like the powerful taking care of the powerful when Josh decided to run again for the Senate this year for the seat being vacated by Rob Portman. He knew this was a a big problem. And so he invited reporters down to the law offices of his lawyers and they they did go through them with reporters. I they were redacted, but as I recall, very little so. I mean, what was removed were the things that are often removed from public records, like social security numbers and things. I think when Andrew Tobias went through them, we saw them completely. But it is the principle of the thing, Courtney. Right. It's that the court shouldn't have done this. This is the public's business. That's why courts are public. And the judge was way out of line sealing these records. And frankly, you shouldn't be allowed to go to a county where you're not a resident to file your divorce papers. You should have to do that in the community where you live. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting here. I mean, this is a win for public records in Ohio, right? And the Supreme Court was really kind of forceful in, in how they explained how wrong this judge's decision was. They basically said, not only does the judge's order fail to explain why he thought it was okay to wholesale seal these documents, but but he didn't he didn't say if he considered a less restrictive means here. He, he just did not a- approach this properly. And the Supreme Court called that out. Yeah, it's an abuse of judicial discretion, and the guy should actually be in trouble for doing it. This was wrong in every way possible. Good for the Supreme Court. Pretty much, almost, was it unanimous? I know there were concurring opinions. Nobody dissented on this, though, right? Um, It doesn't look like it, but uh, Justice Sharon Kennedy wrote her own opinion. So. Yeah, she thought a different part of the law applied than what the majority, but they all said in the strongest way possible, Judge, you can't do it. Shame on you. And we agree. Shame on you. It's today in Ohio. Downtown Cleveland's vacancy rate for offices is down, according to one report. 
But Lisa, that's not really good news in the office sector. How come? Well, it's because a lot of these places are being converted into apartment buildings, which is good in its own way. But there are actually two reports that we looked at from real estate firms. The Jones Lang LaSalle firm, or JLL, their their reporting went all the way back to March of 2020. And they say since that time, office vacancies have dropped three-tenths of a percent from 14.9 to 14.6% last month. About 1.3 million square feet of office space has been converted converted to apartments, according to this report, but they point out that 2 million square feet of office space is is under construction right now downtown, including the Sherwin-Williams building. Not sure how much square footage is there. It will be the fourth tallest building downtown, which I didn't know. Uh, Another report from the real estate firm of Newmark, that's their third quarter report, so it only covers the last three months. They say the vacancy rate downtown decreased from 19% to 18.5% over last year. Asking rental prices, though, are only up one penny per square foot, and they don't expect any future large rent increases downtown. Both reports said this, but they also found that subleases have increased. So that just shows that a lot of uh, offices are downsizing. Some are moving to the suburbs to lower their costs and have a smaller footprint. Well, we're, we're going to be doing some more work on this because there is a frightening trend involved in that as offices convert to residential, because the residential gets abatement for 15 years, the taxes plummet. Mm. The other thing is there is no abatement for people that develop offices, mm. except in the case of gigantic projects like Sherwin-Williams, where people are throwing money at them. So if I have a building, I can save a lot of money by making it residential that I can't save if I make it for offices. So the, the city's policy pretty much discourages office development and you can see over time how that's affecting things. And as I understand it, that they consider the occupancy for an office building four people per, per whatever the measurement is where it's one for residentials. So it's, it's affecting downtown in a way that I don't think there's been a public discussion about. So these are chilling numbers in some ways, yeah. if unless it's deliberate. I mean, if you say, you know what, we need fewer offices. Let's make downtown a big residential neighborhood. Okay, fine. But that's not what anybody ever said. And it doesn't seem like anybody is actually at the wheel saying, what's our vision here? Well, and I, you know, I do think downtown residency is important, but when it starts to take over, you know, I I firmly believe that a vibrant downtown hinges on offices and businesses. That's just my opinion. And if you make it more residential and less, you know, of of a work center, I think that there are negative impacts. Yeah, it is. And I think we're reaching a crisis point. And look, when the pandemic began, we talked about how who's going to be the visionary that figures out the future downtown. And as you talk to people that are involved in this business in Cleveland, basically nobody is thinking about it. And so there's some drive now to get a conversation going. And we'll, again, we'll, it'll take us a little while to get the stories together, but we'll have some stuff on it soon. It's Today in Ohio. 
The Ohio Debate Commission formed four years ago with the sole aim of being a neutral agency staging debates for key statewide races. So how is it possible that the commission is holding no debates this election season, which has a bunch of key statewide races? And Laura, I don't know how long I have to keep disclosing this. I was one of the founding members of the debate commission. I was on the board of the debate commission until spring, but I've had no connection to it since. So basically, the debate commission this year, this season, can't get anyone to come to their debates. And I feel that's where we kind of cue, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, if we ever did that where we we added clips. But this is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization that was created in 2018 for the sole purpose of hosting these big debates. And this year, they wanted to host debates for the U.S. Senate, Governor and Chief Justice, of the Ohio Supreme Court, all for the general election. And the Democrats largely have agreed. Of course, they're the underdogs in all these races, and they basically can't get the Republicans to say, okay, I'll face off. I, I Look, I, we've talked about the governor's race, and, you know, it's it's kind of shameful he's not debating. Uh, he's, we're still waiting to get confirmation he's going to appear before editorial board with his opponent, Nan Whaley. And J.D. Vance said he wasn't going to participate with the debate commission debates because the 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 head of it has been democratic activist in the past although she's not she's very neutral in the role the supreme court though i thought would would happen because when i was on the debate commission one of my chief purposes two years ago was to stage supreme court debates and both sharon kennedy and jennifer bruner appeared for those debates. We had put together an advisory panel with a retired Republican Supreme Court justice, a retired Democrat Supreme Court justice, and Ron Adrian, the retired Cleveland Municipal Court judge, to advise us on the kinds of questions the candidates can answer. And then the advisory panel members cajoled the judges, the candidates, to participate, and they did, and they largely had a good experience. Mm -hmm. So I cannot, for the life of me, understand why Sharon Kennedy balked this time. I, there was, it was not a bad experience for her, and she ended up winning. So I, I just, there wasn't really an explanation of what the breakdown was because they said they did those discussions in confidence. Right. But they something said, changed. They said the campaign was very actively engaged, trying to work out details, and they were unable to get past something. But I don't know why, except that maybe she doesn't want to answer for the redistricting issues. Um, I mean, these are big deals. Of, of who who controls the Supreme Court, because they're going to be looking at really hot button issues like redistricting, abortion. I mean, a lot of energy issues. And maybe she just doesn't want to have to answer yeah, any but you, questions. But you really can't ask those questions because that is a matter well, before that's them. True. That's what we learned. They could ask her because she's been really bad about this. Is it appropriate for you to be discussing your views on an issue when it will become before you? She's been out taking money from abortion, anti-abortion groups to speak to them. And all three of them have made their opinions known on abortion. Uh, Eric Foster has a great column about that that we published today. So maybe that's it. But I, I just I thought that one would happen. And so now it's a big goose egg for the debate commission. And you got to wonder what's the future for it if they can't get people to appear for their debates. Well, they say they're getting, they're looking at whether to get involved in municipal races in 2023. I guess those might be easier to get. And they are holding um, some kind of event for, I think, high school students and about democracy, which is cool, but that's not the reason that they exist. 
I think they need to get some Democratic and Republican Party people on their board to help facilitate this. I think part of the reason they're getting into roadblocks is there's Republicans really don't feel like they're represented on the board. Sad I, day. Cause I do. Go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to say that they are trying to figure out how to get more direct from the candidates answers without being, you know, uh, paid advertising or just stump speeches. And so I do have to salute them and their goal of getting these debates before the public. I mean, yeah. it is an important, important yeah. task. It's really noble. It's why we invested some real money in it when it began. And and the voters are the losers here because this mm-hmm. was a noble effort. They put a lot of time into it and they don't get anything for the voters. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland's tourism industry is rebounding nicely from the pandemic, even though it's still down before the pandemic began. Courtney, what's the latest? Yeah, so we learned that the greater Cleveland area saw 16 million visitors in 2021. That's kind of our big first global look at at last year's results. And, you know, that's down from the 19.6 million we saw just prior to the pandemic in 2019. But it is climbing up from those record lows that happened in 2020. We're 17% above our 2020 visitor numbers. You know, Cleveland, before the pandemic, was on pace to to go over that $20 million million mark um, in visitors. But but obviously, it's going to take a little while before we can recover and, and keep heading in that direction. You know, reporter Susan Glazer notes that, that our rebound's looking better than other big like the big cities New York City and Chicago those those cities have not rebounded nearly as much as we have they're hovering around half it sounds like of their pre-covid numbers but you know she notes that you know Cleveland's return here is thanks in part at least partially to the fact of our location we're easy to get to from a good chunk of of the US and the eastern seaboard um, but she did also note that we're still lagging the rest of Ohio. Rural areas, particularly Hocking Hills, really jettisoned up their visitor numbers in the last two years. And 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 we're not quite to that level uh, where we are statewide. That's because they're outdoors. Right. People, want, people go to the state parks because they're outdoors. Right. Did I read it right or are our numbers around where we were 10 years ago? Because um, we had a chart that looked like that you had to go back pretty far to the level where we're at. Yeah. So 16, around 16 million last year. And that's right about where we were in 2013. So it's been steady increases by about a million, less than a million each year. And we're back a decade. Yeah. We got a ways to go. It's today in Ohio. Ohio just keeps getting good manufacturing news with some huge investments. What is the new plan announced by Honda for the state, Lisa? Yeah, there's a $4.2 billion project in the works, and this is a joint effort between Honda and LG Energy Solutions. They're going to be building an electric vehicle plant in Fayette County, which is southwest of Columbus. It should be finished in 2024 and will provide 2,200 permanent jobs. Um, Honda is also spending an additional $700 million to transform their existing plants in Anna, East Liberty, and Marysville, and they will be retooled to make electric vehicle parts. Uh, Governor DeWine says that uh, the state offered incentives, but we don't have any details yet from the Ohio Department of (laughs) Development. And Jobs Ohio spokesman Matt Engelhart says they are also providing financial assistance to all of the projects listed, but no details until the final agreement. 
Well, and often we don't get the details from Jobs Ohio. We talked earlier in the week about how we found out what they were kicking in for the flight to Ireland only because Cleveland made a paperwork mistake or an online mistake. Uh, it's a problem with the secrecy. So we could be paying Honda many, 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 many millions, and we just don't know it. It does feel like, though, about every week for a long time, we've had news of a huge investment in manufacturing in this state. It's good news for jobs, yeah. uh, although none of it's in Northeast Ohio or very right. little of it and, is in Northeast and, Ohio. And Governor DeWine's opponent in the governor's race, Nan Whaley, accused DeWine of only focusing on Central Ohio for economic development, although DeWine pointed back to the Sherwin-Williams building, although I would point out that Sherwin-Williams was already here. Um, but I she does have a point, but going back to the jail discussion in Brownfields, I think, you know, Cuyahoga County has, it was an industrial county. You know, there's a lot of Brownfields, and if we don't clear those Brownfields for development, then we're going to be, you know, lagging in the race. Well, and and a lot of these companies are looking for some pretty big plots of land, and we don't have that. We did not have anything that could have satisfied Intel that we just don't have mm-hmm. it in Cuyahoga County because of how built out we are. So, but, but look, it's great news for the state and we're part of the state, even though the legislature likes to think we're just here to provide money for everybody else. It's today in Ohio. We talked a lot about the problems plaguing the corrupt East Cleveland police department, wondering why elected officials cannot get things under control. We'll soon know if residents are fed up based on an Ohio Supreme Court decision to give the voters there some say. Laura, what's the decision about? Well, these folks are allowed to decide if they want to recall their mayor. And the reason is this has gone to the Supreme Court is that Mayor Brandon King and the city's law director, Willa Hemmins, wanted to stop the election in November, saying that the petition to the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections should have been disqualified because it exceeded more than 200 words. But basically, the high court said they have no authority over this. The the Board of Elections doesn't because it's the city charter that governs the recall process for an elected East Cleveland official. And seven out of the last 13 recall positions certified by the East Cleveland's clerk of council to the county's board of elections since 2015 included statements exceeding 200 words. Can I just go back at that though? 13 recall positions petitions since 2015. That's seven years. That's two a year trying to recall people in East Cleveland. That's kind of crazy. Well, it's the, the city's in chaos. The police department has a gigantic percentage of officers under indictment. Right. They're broke. They can't serve their residents. I mean, just about everything that can go wrong is going wrong. So in disgust, no sooner do they elect somebody than they're trying to unelect them because they want somebody that's going to solve the problem. In this case, you have to wonder why the mayor didn't fire the police chief and go and find a new police chief because the police department is so out of control. The residents are being terrorized by the police force. I mean, I think he stood behind the chief. It wasn't just that he didn't fire him. It was that he believed that they should be chasing people through East Cleveland, which literally called caused people to die. I mean, it's horrendous what is going on in this town. And I'd like to point out here that Brandon King came in after they recalled the last uh, mayor, Gary Norton, in 2016. There was a recall election. King was elected. Then he was reelected. If I remember correctly, the turnout for these elections has been incredibly low. So right. maybe this time people will get out and vote. Yeah. I mean, Gary Norton was the one person and that ever held authority there that wanted to 
work to merge East Cleveland with Cleveland to try and change the trajectory. But like you said, the voters tossed him. It's today in Ohio. All right, the Guardians did lose their first game to the Yankees, but on the good news day, when they won the game that sent them to New York, it was a teenager who caught the game-winning home run in the 15th inning that gave them the win. What's the story on that teenager, Courtney? This is just a delightful story by reporter Mark Bona. He talked to 16-year-old Megan Forshee. She She's a Westlake girl, and she's a high school junior. She plays softball uh, for the Westlake High Demons. And her skills were definitely on display for the world when she caught that amazing, you know, home run from Oscar Gonzalez over the weekend. You know, she she she's a right-handed player, and and she kind of you know, definitely moved over to the left. She said she had her eye on the ball as soon as it left his bat, tracked it all the way, and and she just landed that catch beautifully. And she she recalled kind of the moment there she was sitting next to her dad and just how they were in shock and kind of screaming and hugging and and, and you know, she's she's a she's a baseball fan. She she wants to go to the 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 divisional series, excuse me, this week against the Yankees, if she can swing it. I thought it was uh, really interesting. Bona talked to an auction house who valued the ball at five to ten thousand dollars. Now, now Megan doesn't know if she's going to hold on to it yet. She she might have Oscar sign it, um, but she said she'd be willing to trade it back, which is kind of you know an option when when these things happen. I. I well, she, but but the ball, according to the story, gets worth more the deeper they go into the playoffs. So she ought to hold <laughs> on to it to see what the value is. Uh, I did think it was interesting. Mark asked her who her favorite player oh. was. And for the <laughs> longest time, it had been one guy, but not anymore. Here's her quote. This is a great one. She said her, her favorite player, I would say Jose Ramirez was. But now I probably have to say Oscar Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good story. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>